0: Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Today, I have a very special guest, none other than arguably the greatest ski film star of all time and inarguably the most watched skier of the 1980s, maybe the 1990s, the one, the only, the inimitable Scott Schmidt. Scott, <laughs> welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan.
1: Oh, Jackson, that's that's quite an intro. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So looking forward to talking with you.
0: Yeah, are you calling uh, me from Yellowstone?
1: Yeah, I just got off the hill. Um, we actually got some snow last night. It's been like 40 days and 40 nights without snow, and um, but uh, back at the cabin, mid mountain Yellowstone Club, yeah, and things are starting to
0: look a little better around here. Mid mountain at the Yellowstone Club—that sounds pretty nice. Do you have an official title?
1: Yeah, you know, I've uh, been a ski ambassador here since um, you know since like 03, o- you know, the 0304 winter. That's when I started here. Um, they brought me on full-time with the new ownership in the 07 winter. I've been here ever since.
0: Wow, with your own digs?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've always wanted a ski cabin, but I could ski to and from. <laughs> I just didn't think it'd be so nice. How um, many people were on the mountain with you today? Oh, there was only a couple hundred people hitting it today. We're looking at a pretty big weekend coming up, though. Um, it comes in waves here.
0: What are the anecdotes that you told during the Legend of Oz screening last year, or when was it, maybe two years, two or three years ago now that I maybe think about it, that Squaw was when Tom Brady challenged you to a race. Would you share that with my dear listeners?
1: <laughs> yeah, of course. You know he's Tom Brady and he's really competitive. And I, I ski with him when he when he when he passes through here. He's such a blast to hang out with and ski with. And but you know he's he's got that Tom Brady thing that he's just. He, He's so competitive and we get to the top of the run and he goes, Scott, let's race. And I go, Tom, no, let's not race because if anything happens, I'll get hate mail for the rest of my life. And he's a big dude, right? And um, I, I, I looked at his bindings. He set on seven and I said, you know, if those come off, <laughs> it won't be pretty. <laughs> he goes, they're not coming off. We're racing. Let's go. You know, <laughs> and he can't really skate or he's, he's new to skiing, right? But he charges, which is just awesome. It's so fun to watch him have fun with it. So I skate away. He's nowhere near me. I'm I'm long gone, and he's just riding a flat ski. And he finally catches me. He starts drafting me, and he catches me mid mountain and passes me. <laughs> and I can't catch him. He's you know he's got way twice the weight I have practically, <laughs> and he's riding a flat ski, and he's just he's gone. I couldn't catch him.
0: <laughs> is, do you ski with him on a regular basis?
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. When, when he's here and he's out, when he's not with his kids and his family, um, not, you know, me and my buddy Jason are usually skiing with him.
0: Do you have any other celebrities that you often ski with you can share with our dear listeners or do you want to keep uh, all that behind the screen?
1: Yeah, no, there's no, not, not so much. There's not too many celebrities that are really, really strong skiers, so I don't get a lot of that, you know, I'd say Tom's probably one of the the strongest and most competitive of them all. You know, Justin Timberlake is, is really good on a snowboard, but you know, he's on a snowboard. So I have a, always an interesting mixed bag of people coming through. It's never boring. It's always fun. Yeah. Always fun and interesting people coming through. It's my bookings are usually, it's a mixed bag of, you know, I do athlete relations here and ski industry relations. I was just with Jesse and, and Matt Cassidy from, um, Kessley we have demo days happening here uh, next few days. So yeah, industry, athletes, special guests, members, and in, in some of their events. So it keeps me busy.
0: I heard also from Stumpy that you shared an anecdote with him when Brady was called referring to you as the GOAT. And <laughs> you had never heard of the expression greatest of all time and this acronym GOAT. So it didn't sound really all that complimentary to your ears, <laughs> I, I
1: I know I don't watch much football, obviously, and I kept calling me the goat. I was like, "I just why is he calling me the goat?" You know, I look at my buddy Jason. He goes, "Dude, don't you know that's the greatest of all time?" I was like, "Oh, I get it." <laughs> <laughs> but uh-huh. he's the greatest of all time. I don't know why he's calling me the goat,
0: Jeez. <laughs> Let's take you back to an earlier time when you had. At least was living in somebody's lodge on a mountain. What your time at Fernie, talk to me a little bit about your time with the Katsky operation and Island Lake Lodge, I believe it was. You did some filming there even with Stumpy, maybe with Gaffney. Yeah. Oh, we were we were so stoked when we discovered that place. We were actually shoot in the film
1: Siberia. And we were with Craig Kelly on that trip, and we just got you know, we we just got shut down in Siberia. The the weather, the avalanche hazard, the, the Russians, the vodka—you name it. It was just crazy, and it and it was it was quite dangerous. So we're we're having a meeting, and Craig Kelly goes, "Well, let's let's go to Island Lake." And we we like, well, "What's Island Lake?" And, and Craig's like, "Oh, this is a new place. You got to check it out. It's in Fernie." So fast forward a week later, we get to the Island Lake Lodge. Dan McDonald, the guy that built the lodge, was leasing the land from Shell Canada, and he. I was just blown away with this place. You can't miss with a camera there. It's so spectacular and such fun terrain. And the owner or the guy who's leasing, he says, you know, we're trying to buy this land from Shell Canada. If that happens, would you be interested? And I said, well, give me a call. This place is freaking amazing. <laughs> you know, within a few months, I get a call and he had 30 days to raise, you know, several million dollars to buy the 7,000 acres. And he pulled the deal off at the last hour. And there was about 10 athletes that threw some money into the deal. You know, a couple of oil and gas guys out of Calgary, a developer out of Whistler, and the deal just barely made it through. And we ran it for 10 years until somebody came in and took us out. But it was a fun 10 years.
0: You ever get frustrated with cat skiing to be compared to heli skiing? It seems like the old double chairs with, you know, no armrests compared <laughs> to a high-speed quad of today.
1: Ah not at island lake is the premier operation and the only one in the world that operates on private land so it is not like your typical cat
0: skiing operation i imagine i just just looking at the online pictures of the base lodge it sort of looks like holy moly how does this go equate to cat skiing i'd love to see the cat that can go straight up these mountains brother
1: yeah and and the road system does go straight up and the high alpine is 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 world-class the tree Skiing is really good. You know, the guides, the guides summer job is glading, So they make sure the runs go top to bottom. There's an old growth cedar forest there. It's um, just magical. It's, uh, I believe it's the furthest Eastern old growth cedar forest on the continent. It's very special skiing through giant cedars
0: <laughs> and the
1: staff and the, the, the team there's always been great. And they are a top notch operation. We go every year with 36 guys. We take over the whole lodge. I've had the same tours for years. Once you have a tour, you you own it until you give it up, basically. And it's pretty hard to get a tour.
0: Um, so you're <laughs> so we're, we're describing to our dear listeners a, a Nirvana they may never see because it's, <laughs> it's, it's already booked.
1: Well, there's a wait list, and if you stay on it, you kind of get a you kind of get a few seats on a cat one year, and then you kind of bump the other guys out, and then you you never want to go with a mixed group if you can. So you want you want to bring twelve. That's the goal at least. Yeah. So you're not in a mixed cat, you know? So, yeah, you want to know your team players. That's you can for sure. Fill,
0: you got to fill the fill the bus, as you might say. <laughs> so you need to have 12.
1: Yeah, but if you, can get your foot, if you can get your foot in the door with just a couple of seats, then you can slowly kind of inch your way to
0: 12. You know? Sounds like a plot for a great murder mystery. If you bump <laughs> off the people in front of you. What's what's yeah. your motivation? I, I want to get my seat on the on uh, the cat. <laughs> it, it
1: took <laughs> us years. You know, I had a group of 12. I went there every year forever, and then we've slowly bumped out the oh, other 12 and then after a couple more years we bumped out the other 12 so now we have all 36 seats (laughs) and we go every year and it's so much fun because it's a hand-picked group of alpha males and everybody's just having a blast
0: oh god we pulled back the veil of time again another leaping back you were a ridge rat at bridger weren't you in your list led youth
1: yeah, you know, not so much. I was, you know, I was on the Bridgeable ski team when I was in high school and I was always banging gates, banging bamboo back then. I knew of Tom Youngst and Doug Coombs and all those guys, that were the Ridge hippies. And, um, but I was so focused on racing. It kind of wasn't my thing yet. Oh, so you didn't hang uh, with that crowd there. Yeah. So, but you know, and then I got, you know, after I moved to Squaw, that's when I kind of started uh, really, really connecting with Coombs and and when I did get back to Bridger, and whenever I was in Montana, I'd be seeing with Tom Youngst and the gang. And those are the guys that kind of schooled me up on the ridge and showed me the lines. And, but that was until, you know, after my racing career. And who did you race for? Bridger Bowl ski team all through high school. And then um, I actually won a whole series of races in 1979, kind of dating myself here. Uh, the Northern Division Championships were held at Bridger Bowl that year. I crashed in the slalom, won my my division, in the GS, and then I beat everybody in the downhill, including all the NCAA racers and all the expert class guys. And the first day, they thought something was wrong with the timing because there's no way this skinny kid from Montana City is going to be beating all these guys. You know, it's, you know, third, fourth seed. I, I can't remember where I was running, but, yeah, came in first place day one, clocked the, the pretty much the exact same time on day two. After that whole series of races, my coach pulled me aside and he goes, man, you should get out of Montana and get in a bigger program. And that's when I decided to make the move to Squaw Valley.
0: Oh, okay. What year was that? 80?
1: Yeah, that would be the uh, 79-80 season.
0: Yeah. And it didn't take you too long. I'm looking at your Warren Miller Productions resume, and it begins in 1983 with ski time, which means that someone had to discover you, so to speak. Who first championed your cause or opened up the ski world to scott schmidt no i'd
1: have to say so i was kind of falling out of the racing scene i had good points when i arrived but i didn't really have the dollars to chase it so kind of after the second the second year being on the team <clears throat> um i started hanging out with the uh <clears throat> the locals you know the speed skiers the steve mckinney's of the day and everybody back then was skiing on 220s with downhill poles and just taking it to the mountain you know so i started hanging out with those guys instead of ski team kids. And, Started working with Larry Prosser. So I'll have to throw Larry Prosser a bone there. He's the first guy to start taking photos of me at Squaw. I ended up with a picture in Powder Magazine. That was kind of a new thing for me. And then one night, the phone rings, and it's Gary Nate from Warren Miller Films. And he says, I hear you're the guy that's leaving those tracks through the cliffs. And I'm here to film that stuff. (laughs) That was the beginning of my uh, film career.
0: In 1988 is when... You not only did Escape to Ski with Warren Miller, but somehow found time to do your first collaboration with Greg Stump on Blizzard of Oz. Stump claims that you claim that he stalked you for years at ski shows (laughs) trying to get you to get in front of his camera talk to yes. talk to me as to a uh, stump the stalker
1: so that is a true story <laughs> <laughs> and i would m- bump into him at these trade shows or whatnot you know and around the you know around the industry and you know i had seen maltese flamingo and time wakes for snowman and i was like greg i don't know i just do i don't see myself fitting into what you're doing you know and warren miller still owned the company at that time and, you know, uh, uh, Warren was traveling, you know, traveling me around the world with some great opportunities and some great locations. But then Greg says, well, <clears throat> I've got budget to go to Chamonix for five or six weeks. And I go, ooh, Chamonix. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to have another Maltese Flamingo or another Time Waits for Snowman. Yeah. But then he produces The Blizzard of Oz. And that film did more for my career overnight than 10 years of Warren Miller films. It just was so well received and so much fun.
0: Talk about your uh, Today Show appearance with Brian Gumble. Clake was in the full Mohawk and red, white, and blue <laughs> schematics, <laughs> shall we say? Talk about what that moment did for your career.
1: Yeah, so that was you know definitely a highlight. Again, yeah, next thing you know, we're being flown to New York to be on the Today Show. This film was so well received, and there's so much energy around it that that you know I don't know how we how Brian picked up on it but he wanted us to come out for that show and um, getting Glenn into the country was the first challenge and I hadn't seen Glenn since I'd left Sham you know so um, he had was kind of stuck there so we meet in New York Glenn shows up in his his patriotic three-piece suit (laughs) I'm the sport boy with a North Face sweater on and the K2 turtleneck and (laughs) and the bullet and everything you know
0: (laughs) yeah that was an incredible show but it it was the launch pad wasn't it in, in terms of national recognition
1: oh it was for sure i mean after that show uh aired we were getting calls from hollywood producers that were saying okay you guys are the new odd couple of the the, the extreme world and we're gonna <clears throat> we're gonna build a whole series of shows around you guys and this and that And the phone kept ringing you know with this and that and whatever and some of that stuff never really happened but you know it was just it was the start of something new and uh, I'm so stoked that I uh, did not pass on Greg's offer because <laughs> I almost didn't, almost didn't take that, you know. And I, I don't know if I'd be sitting here today if I hadn't have done the Blizzard of Oz.
0: It certainly was one of those lightning in a bottle moments, just sort of captured the zeitgeist perfectly. And uh, was that the first time people were throwing around the word extreme? I'm certainly the word ex- existed in the language before then, and there were people skiing extreme conditions. Before Blizzard of Oz, certainly. Well, and and even before you know Scott Schmidt, They were who who were your inspirations, if you will, the prior generations that inspired you.
1: Yeah, so you know that that extreme title, I was never really comfortable with that. That happened, you know, before the Stumpy thing. The North Face ran an ad. This had to been, gosh, probably mid eighties, sometime. I guess eighty five or eighty six or so where, you know, they, would, they had a picture of me just doing a flying cross off a rock with the Matterhorn in the background, and on the side of the ad it said extreme, you know, and they had the extreme gear back then. And I was never really comfortable with being called an extreme skier because, for me, that was the guys like, you know, Patrick Valencent and Jean-Marc Bovon and those guys that were doing death-defying first descents. That was extreme skiing to me. I didn't consider myself in that league. I was more of an ex-racer trying to go big and trying to go fast. And extreme skiing is not that. You're down climbing, basically. (laughs) Breaking world descent records, but the ski industry needed something because snowboarding was coming on strong. Extreme skiing kind of filled that niche, and uh, we've had that ever since.
0: I'm going to flip the script a little bit and talk to the other side of Gott Schmidt, the skier, which is Scott Schmidt connecting to the mountain. This is a big theme in my own writing. I wrote a book called Snowbird Secrets that's all about the relationship between the skier and the mountain itself. And I don't mean it metaphorically, I mean it physically. I mean it literally, the relationship between the skier and the mountain. And you speak to that in a sequence that I transcribed I think it's from Siberia originally. It reappears in Legend of Oz, and I'm going to read it into the record here and just leave it, let you comment on it when I'm through with this, and I'm sure you'll recognize this. It happens to be such a strong statement that I used it to lead into chapter 19 of Snowbird Secrets, which is called On Gratitude and Asking Permission. Mm -hmm. And it opens with a quote from you that says, it's more, I'd say, not so much a word as kind of a state of consciousness that I try to get into. And it has to do with, I'm not trying to sound too weird, it's tuning into the earth and her spirit. I ask the earth a lot if it's safe to go over here or go over there, things like that. The things that guide me are these vibrations that I feel, these frequencies of light that go through my body. I've had plenty of experiences that justify this. I've been in really weird situations and been told not to go there by the earth. And sure enough, I shouldn't have. <laughs> Tell me about Scott, the connector with the mountain.
1: Well, yeah. So I mean, it is so scary and so dangerous out there. And I, I had my ass handed to me uh, early on, early in my career when I was living in Verbier with uh, with Faulkner and Ace Cavalli. and I got I got swept in a size class three, probably a size three and a half, easy. You know, swept to my death. So. I had an awakening in, in that in that moment. The mountain is so powerful and so dangerous, and you know if it if it wants to smash you and, and crush you and, and end your life, it, it doesn't care. It won't hear you screaming or anything. You know, it's so I, I learned a lot of respect to uh, just. I guess my point is, you know, ac- actually surviving that that experience taught me to really be aware and keep my spidey senses on. There is no. I mean, you can take the scientific approach, you can take the spiritual approach, but, you know, it is, it, it, there is no, there's no guarantee of safety. <laughs> so really? the only thing that, I, you know, would, would keep me from, you know, feeling safe was um, feeling that good feeling, you know, the, the goosebumps. If I get goosebumps, I'm going to go. If, I, if it feels creepy and weird, I'm not going to go. Yeah, the other
0: side to this story, dear listeners, is uh, I, I mentioned in a paragraph that it, in the book that immediately follows Scott's statement that Scott has never been hurt. There's something about this connection to the mountain because somehow those two guys get on the same page. Scott and the, and the <laughs> mountain, who I'm personifying as the guy, <laughs> managed to agree. And, and you mentioned it as, you know, specifically as, as being vibrational. And I think you're right. Do you, and you mentioned goosebumps, but it isn't. It's also, or globally, a sensation in your body. Would you say?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's it's um, it's kind of like a muscle that I've I've exercised over the years. Um, you know the the goosebumps to me are truth and light, and 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 you know I I feel like I'm doing the right thing, and I'm in the right place if I'm feeling that. And you know it's it. it it's ineffable, really, you know, it's just a feeling that i kind of exercise, And if I, if I get that feeling, I'm good to go. But if it doesn't feel right to me, um, I've had situations where like we were with Doug Coombs one time, and we we're in Canada, and we were going to head down this big roly poly run. And I just had this really sinking feeling. And I kept asking my, my higher self or my higher being or whatever, you know, what is going on here? And uh, Doug saw me hesitate. He goes, Well, let me go down there and look. So he goes down there and digs a pit. He comes back up, eyes just as big as possible. He says, let's absolutely, listen. do not go down here. <laughs> and, you know, and when he said that, I got the goosebumps again. So that was, you know, there's things like that, that just affirm that, you know, listen, listen to yourself, listen to your higher, whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, but it, it is there and you have to exercise it in order for it to work. Did um, something
0: like that happen during the Siberia shoot in Russia?
1: Yes. Yeah. I just kept feeling that this isn't right. Somebody's going to get hurt, you know. I felt like I was going to be okay because we were picking small slopes, but sure enough, even those small slopes were almost killing us. So that's when we decided to so let's wrap it up. Let's get out of here. Let's Didn't go. Did you almost earth. get caught in one? Oh yeah, it's it's actually caught on film. I was able to luckily, I was able to stay on my feet and slice through it and get to a tree, you know, and hang on. I've been caught up four times. The first one was the the eye opener, the big awakening that I had. I actually saw my life flash in that that that, that massive slide in Burbier that I got caught in. Mm. Um, I've never experienced anything like that and haven't since. But when you see your life flashing before your eyes and the bubbles and the pictures and the family and all the intimacies that you had with others, and it's just, you know, you become super conscious and super physical. And I understood a creation in that moment that you, as you're transcending times as you're being swept to your death you know basically it, it was a really interesting experience for me and it's, it taught me that skill
0: i guess it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty amazing describe to me if you can the sound of what it's like to be caught in a slide like that
1: yeah that that's what blew me way more than anything was the sound. So. I had a I had a pretty good sizable crown go off on me, right? You know, 10, 20 feet up above me, uh, three, probably three feet deep, several hundred feet long. And it, w- it sounded like a cannon. You know, when when that thing exploded, that was the first thing. I was like, what the You know, who's shooting a canyon, a cannon, you know? <laughs> you know, so because what it what it releases, it pops. And it's a loud, loud pop. Yeah. Next thing I know, I get my feet ripped out from underneath me, and I'm on this giant slab just going zero to 100 instantly down into this giant couar, watching it all break up around me and just sucking me in at that same you know in in that in that experience i'm transcending time and what took 30 seconds seemed to take like at least three minutes (laughs) you know everything slowed down and i was able to not only be super physical and struggle and fight and get into position But I was also having a spiritual experience at the same time, which I found just really profound. But because I was so physical and so Superman-like, you know, I used everything, every bit of strength I had to get into position as it was sucking me in and swallowing me up, I was locked in the ski position with my tips in the fall line. Luckily, you know, I went went through the choke and there was a, a huge apron down below with a bulge in the middle. So... You know, the lights came back on, and it shot me out to the side. I just happened to be on one side of it. If I had been in the middle of it, I wouldn't be sitting here. Mm, Um, But I was going, you know, it felt like I was going 80 to 100 miles an hour. It launched me, you know, 100 feet through the air and out into this bowl full of moguls. (laughs) And I (laughs) land on my feet. (laughs) I remember you land on your feet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Land on my feet and then... Starfish, because I'm in a mogul field,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> Adding insult to injury, if ever yeah. it was one. Oh my God! <laughs> well,
1: no I wonder I remember catching a lot of air out of there. It just because it just ejected me, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, catching a lot of air up there. I want to. That just reminds me of a personal moment you and I shared. It was at a or not at a, but during a K2 Winter Games program, a really clever shop personnel late season promotion that K2 used to do where they would make it possible by reducing airfares or whatever sort of voodoo to for people who were shop rats around the country, and I mean that in the most affectionate way possible, (laughs) to go to a destination resort they wouldn't otherwise go to and, and play. And this particular destination, I believe, was Snowmass, And we basically kidnapped you. We, by myself and a couple of local 'er ne'er-do-wells, grabbed you and said, you're coming with us over to Ajax. (laughs) And off we went and had an absolutely wonderful day. I think of mostly pretty good soft crud skiing, some bump skiing. And I remember one memorable run where they run the downhill, when they used to run the downhill in Aspen, when we're flying down that run, which is called Aztec. And it's sometimes groomed. And we were flying into it as though we were expecting it to be groomed, which it was not. <laughs> it was all moguls. Yeah. I, I, I got to see you at that moment, shot from a gun <laughs> into a mogul field, because you were about 20 feet in front of me and a bit to my left. And you and I ended up at the bottom, and everyone else just blew up magnificent. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will
1: never forget that moment. Oh, my God. Why they groom the, the top half of the run and not the bottom, I have no idea. It makes no sense. You know, they, you go from full-on cruiser groom to a mogul field, and there's no there's no signs, no warning, no bamboo, no anything.
0: Well, we had a little time <laughs> in the air to think about it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's the cat track where they all pulled off and went into the woods, and then but there's no you can't see the moguls below that cat track, and then you're launching off the cat track into the moguls and yeah, I remember barely staying on my feet through that one.
0: <laughs> oh, you moved them pretty damn
1: quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good thing my bindings are set on 13 or whatever. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Uh, but speaking of also launching air, you became addicted to launching air off of waves. Take, take, take my dear listeners a little bit into your world as a uh, wave sailor.
1: Yeah, I really, you know, growing up in Montana, I always wanted to experience the ocean. And then, you know, moving to Squaw... Uh, you know the ocean's right there. I was like, I didn't want to hang out in Tahoe in the summer. And luckily, one of the guys in my, the ski shop that I worked at was from Santa Cruz. And he goes, "Well, what are you going to do when the snow melts?" And it's like, I got nothing. And he goes, "Well, come to Santa Cruz," and he threw me into the ocean, and uh, I just got my butt kicked. You know, the ocean is so relentless and so cold and gnarly. And so I tried to learn to surf when I first got there, but it just was so difficult for me. Uh, but that was right when windsurfing was starting, so I picked up the board and learned how to. You know, learned how to water start, and next thing I know, I'm 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 out in the waves. I'm like on my sailboard <laughs> instead of sitting in the lineup trying to catch waves. You know, I'm jumping them on the way out and riding them on the way in. For me, that that made more sense. You know, I sailed Bottell Creek every day for at least you know over ten years and got pretty good at it, and I really enjoyed it. It was a great way to spend the off season and challenging.
0: Can't you get serious air off those waves?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you go out on a mass high day and you're in th- that's what's so much fun about it. You're catching so much air on the way out and then you're, you know, you can catch these waves, really big waves on early, at, you know, as the swell is building and just start cutting back and forth and then p- positioning yourself for the for the bottom turn and, and down the line. And, you know, it's just so much fun. And um, I, I, that's that's how I spent my summers for for a long time.
0: I also heard from an inside source that there's another contra-seasonal activity that you got really good at, which is uh, skateboarding. Did you have a half pipe in your backyard?
1: Well, yeah. Growing up in Montana, that's kind of, we didn't have a whole lot to do. So um, I had a buddy that was really into skating. He, I, I, when I was working at a ski shop in Montana, we had the only skate shop in the, practically in the state. <laughs> so he had built a half pipe in the barn. <laughs> And that's you know, and I actually attribute a lot of my race, uh, my uh, success as a racer, to learning how to skate, how to pump the curve, how to, how to you know accelerate in those depressions. So that was a good skill for me. You know, learning to skate ramps taught me a lot about pumping the train. And for me, I use that even to this day. I like to put my turns in the holes and use those rises as the as those lofty transitions. For me, skiing is all about speed and weightlessness and fun and. If you use the terrain to your advantage, it can be really uh, weightless and lofty.
0: <laughs>
1: that's that's what I look for.
0: Yeah, you certainly have that quality. I think uh, it was Warren <laughs> Miller who described you as looking like you were always three feet off the ground or something like that. He had a very charming way of putting it. Yeah. One of the other influences in your life as a skier, and partly, of course, because you your self image as a up and coming young skier was as a racer, was Stenmark. Talk to me about what you learned or how his technique influenced you as both the racer and as a free skier
1: yeah those guys were a big influence on me you know i i studied their technique i wanted to be like Ingemar. i really dug his style you know he had that really deep hip and knee angulation he was really laying it over un- unlike any of the other skiers you know there was gustavo was pretty good at it and another guy piero gross those guys had some style but Ingemar was was special. I really, really wanted to ski like him. I bought all his books. I studied what he was doing. I'd watch everything I could uh, on him. And what did you I got...
0: pick up in particular, if you can remember, from Stenmark's technique?
1: Well, there's this one book called uh, Pianta Sioux, Ski Like the Best," and it was written by Rudy Bear at the time, who was a U.S. Ski Team guy, I think, and he analyzed Ingemar's you know technique and broke it down into sequential photos. And it just clicked with me. My coaches really didn't do a lot for me. I just, you know, I I, I wanted to ski like Ingemar. And that's what kind of, luckily, I have the same kind of body English. You know, my hips and my knees kind of do what Ingemar's did.
0: And, but which, Ingemar is about, he's like he's like 1.5 Scott Schmitz, if I recall. He's not slight. He's not <laughs> he, he, yeah, he's a bigger dude. Yeah, I think. <laughs> he's, he's a bigger dude. And But you seem to have adapted from him or pulled from him. I mean, one of the things that I used to remember from Engmar was how he was on his downhill ski while it was still his uphill ski. (laughs) Right,
1: and that transfer—you know—that and that transfer became so useful in the steep terrain. You know, that bottom one's going to wash out at some point. You got to transfer to the uphill. And it's true with racing and in steep terrain. So uh, when I started skiing the steeps on my race skis, that's, that's kind of the same move.
0: You were photographed a lot in that sort of split stance, just about to make the move, if you will. Yeah. And then to use that uphill leg in a way that most skiing turns do not, shall we say. <laughs> Have you ever, skied, ever seen anything that's too steep to ski? I guess you just jump it, huh? (laughs) If it's too steep to ski.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we used to do have to jump a lot and hop turn it. But uh, yeah, there's definitely things that are too steep.
0: (laughs) Is Europe your would be that would that be your favorite playground? If you could go somewhere, all expenses paid. Well, I guess you probably do that quite a bit anyway. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Is there any place in Europe you'd most like to go re-ski, shall I say?
1: Well, you know, when we when we discovered alaska in the early 90s it was like okay you know i i don't really need to go back to europe (laughs) i'd like to go to alaska you know for the rest of my life (laughs) is is so unique there is so steep and that maritime snowpack is so unique the mountains just it's like every run is like skiing off a bowling ball you know they're steeper towards the bottom and, and and every run ends up on a glacier if I could go anywhere, i go back to Alaska or Greenland. We're, we've been starting to go to Greenland, and Greenland is like Alaska on steroids—just so much bigger. Those are kind of the de- destinations that I would prefer to go. I wouldn't mind going back to Europe because it's been so long and it's such a cultural experience. I think everybody should experience Chamonix and Verbier and all that stuff. It's just if you're a, a real skier, you need to go there. <laughs> go ski Italy. Go ski the Dolomites. See it all. But. For me, that helicopter skiing in those big mountains is, is you know, by far the, the peak of my experiences.
0: By the way, I'm just looking over your Warren Miller resume, and I noticed that in 1992, they did sort of a, a look back, if you will, something called the Scott Schmidt story, as though your bio is, you know, now this historical sweep of your history going back to the early 80s and I think, well, this little bio was written 30 years ago, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I've got all these lines above it <laughs> on the page, and we're talking right now, and you're still trying to go off in ski places where, gee, look at this, this looks like a fun place to ski. Look at the, the bottom of the run falls away from the skier. Doesn't that look like fun? Are you ever <laughs> going to dial it back?
1: You n- no, it's, um, I'm having so much fun with it, and I'm Actually, you know, I ski over 100 days a season now, and it's right out my back door. And I'm having so much fun with it now. For a long time there, you know, when you're doing all the industry things and working with camera guys, and you're not skiing a lot. You know, you're traveling a lot. And you're standing around a lot. and You'll maybe do two or three runs a day when you're working with a film crew. That did get a little old. You know, I was starting to lose my, lose my passion a little bit. But it wasn't until I just started skiing again with awesome people in a great place, I started really having fun with it. And I feel like I'm smoother and faster and smarter than ever. And we have steep world-class terrain here. I mean, we got Euro style descents off the peak here and uh, it's in a lot of no fall zones. So it keeps it real. I'm having fun with it.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's amazing.
1: Do you still shoot with anybody? Yeah, you know, I'll do the occasional, I mean, we shot a, a Warren Miller segment here a couple years ago in Future Retro. I don't know if you've seen that piece, but I actually really enjoyed it. It was not your typical Warren Miller segment. You know, they had some really nice music and told a good story and it kind of touched on Warren Miller here in Big Sky and pretty neat segment. Yeah. We have media groups coming through all the time. I just did a, a thing with, with Bob Lagassa and Dan Herbie here just last weekend, or a couple weekends ago, just for a regional magazine. So I, I do media occasionally. Uh, it's not my focus anymore, but yeah. yeah.
0: Going, going back a long time, just to leap just for leaping back and forth through time, you mentioned Larry Prosser having a pivoted world and uh, with quote-unquote discovering you. And I've shot with Larry many years at Snow Country and I can confirm that you, your your memory of your own life is correct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> other names around here that we would around this household that we would also associate with you would be Bruce Benedict shooting with you with the stump crew and Maybe, did you shoot with Tom Day ever? Yeah.
1: Yeah. In fact, Tom shot that segment in Future Retro just a couple of years ago here, and uh, he skied in it, too. It was kind of a reunion, a class reunion kind of thing with the Eagans and Tom Day and the old school guys passing the torch to the new school guys.
0: Doesn't sound like you're exactly letting go of the torch. No. It's <laughs> a, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm still burning a little bit here, you know. But boy, it sure is fun watching the the, the, the Parkins of the world, you know, parkin Constantine and those guys just freaking... Sending it and stomping it and going so fast and so big, it's pretty impressive. Of course, well, they're they're on giant skis, and you know, we didn't have that advantage back then. Um, you know, we were all
0: on sinkers. <laughs>
1: yeah, sinkers, and you didn't know which one to stand on when you're coming out of some of these shoots because you know they're so tricky and you end up cartwheeling a lot back in
0: the day. <laughs> well, I remember coming off the Palisades, and by the way, you'll notice is your your ex-stomping grounds as well, sort of renamed itself after perhaps the one part of the mountain most associated with your legacy i think isn't there still Schmidt uh saw one of the name of one of the lines down palisades um, yeah
1: yep uh, I, I, I didn't come up with that name but it kind of stuck we just you know we, we were actually shooting with uh gary nape on that that very first uh warren miller film that we shot there we'd been hitting the palisades all morning and we're looking for something a little a little unique and a little, a little more challenging and I started looking at this one section of the chimney chute that nobody had ever really looked at before. I said, I think I'm going to give this a go. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there was no name for it back then. But after that, they just started calling it Schmidiets and it's been called that ever since.
0: Is that just a visualization talent you think that you have to see that line and then to to then go ski the goddamn thing? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I,
1: I, I base all of my decisions off of my experience that I gained in the Palisades. I pretty much pushed my limit there. I'll never want to jump as high or go as fast. as I've flown 120 feet through the air up there, and um, I mean, one time going off of Bex Rock, and you know, I'd, I'd done a bunch of 60s and 80s, and you know, a couple of hundreds there, but going for like a little over hundred, 120, I just remember leaving the edge and just going, "Oh God, what did I do? To do I just killed myself?" <laughs> <laughs> That's what went through my head as I left the edge, and but you know, I landed it, didn't hurt, but I just. I just won't go any higher than that. You know, it just was, that was enough.
0: <laughs> talk about motoring out of the finish. And then you have all those traverse lines, which yeah. cross the, the bottom of it. Talk about cartwheeling. Yeah. Those, those traverse lines must've tripped you up at least once.
1: <laughs> yeah. you got to have it together before you get to the traverse. And then there's going to be some moguls down there too, <laughs> which is why you needed those two twenties. Those are the only things that worked up there. You know, you were going so fast and that chimney shoot, you know, that really, uh, that really sends you out there and, and, you know, there's no slowing down until you're until you're out into the bowl.
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you were growing up, you grew up in Helena, which Geography Buffs probably know is the capital of Montana. Uh, that's probably the end of most people's understanding of what that must have been like. Uh, what was it like growing up as a kid in Helena?
1: Well, you know, I actually didn't grow up in Helena. That's actually a city <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> a town. Uh, I'm from Montana City, which is south of Helena. You know, not not too far from Helena, but I'm from Montana City, Montana. Um, very, very rural area. I went to a two-room school, an old stone building down by the Prickly Pear Creek. <laughs> you know, I had a pretty sheltered life, a very quiet upbringing. You know, we had horses and stuff and just country living, you know, basically. But my dad decided that we needed something to do together as a family, and he thought skiing would be fun. I was four years old. I'm so glad he chose skiing over something else because... <laughs> I mean, we, we loved it. We looked forward to it. So glad my dad made that choice to to teach us how to ski.
0: Well, that's quite the origin story.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I just really fell in love with skiing it, you know, I really loved it. It's what I did. I, I remember having a, an experience after, you know, I'd been, I just had gotten into racing and had won a few races and I just had this epiphany that, you know, I should be a skier, you know? <laughs> Of course my dad didn't like that idea because it's not very practical and you know you're, he said you're going to be a bum you'll be a ski bum and that's no life and it's like well I, i'm i'm pretty good at this so i think i'm going to do it you know i don't care what anybody says i'm going to go for it and then when i made that decision as a teenager i was like just felt like i had a, a just a huge weight lifted off my shoulders and i was on my way i've never looked back so
0: all the way to the u.s ski and snowboard hall of fame if you remember i was at your induction evening John Clendenin was inducted the same night in Park City, uh, if I recall correctly. Yep, same and night. Yep. <laughs> now the the what you might call the 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 four musketeers of Blizzard of Oz, it's now complete because Glenn, of course, Glenn Plake, uh, got in some years ago, and I nominated our dear friend Stumpy to join the hall, and he was swept in on a popular wave and now Mike Hattrop is going to be inducted in next year's class and that completes the hand if you will <laughs> four of a kind because <laughs> uh, it was certainly a magical combination you still guys still stay in touch a little bit
1: oh yeah 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 I see Hattrup, you know on on, on occasions you uh, know he passes through here I'm really looking forward to getting out to Sun Valley for this event in March and that's going to be a, a class reunion that's going to be really fun to see Stumpy. Uh, and Stumpy's actually going to get on skis
0: again. I, I know yeah. because I'm the one who fit him in boots. Yes. I, uh, <laughs> I had to fit that mangled, god-awful foot. I did. I knew <laughs> he had a ruined forefoot because I was there with the day he smashed it into a piece of his lawn art in the yard um, at their Drichter estate. Yeah, and- But what I didn't realize, his ankle had virtually dissolved. I mean, it looked like the end of a horror movie where the the monster's flesh melts away. And there's Ah. nothing left but this morbid, (laughs) god-awful, you can't even call it a joint anymore. And it didn't articulate exactly well, or didn't, I'm sure it doesn't to this day. But there was a boot I was able to find that had enough room in the heel and step perimeter to get his foot in it. And once in it, I could contain it and <laughs> make it skiable. But my lord, uh, uh, well, he's going to be a challenge. We're going <laughs> to we're going to have to keep our eye on him. <laughs>
1: uh, oh, I'm so glad you got him in boots, and um, and we got him some skis. You know, we sent him some Stokeleys. they just arrived a few days ago. We shipped him some bindings. It's been what fourteen years since he's hit the slopes, and yes. um, we're going to be there to witness this event.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's going to be absolutely wonderful let's wrap up on this note you talked a little bit while ago the modern hot skier has the advantage of a different ski shape of ski than what you were trying to ski when you were in these you know hairball situations you've had a relationship with stokely now for some time and your own signature ski with them when you made your own ski what what did you make
1: well you know i was so so happy to end up with stokely because they make such a high quality product and to be able to help design something was really was really fun we've always wanted pro models because you know we just like to build them a little bigger and a, little, a little better and you know they don't the big skis don't really sell that well so it was kind of the first push to build big badass skis you know basically big big fat race skis you know that was that was my original goal with my pro models They've since got a lot easier, a little easier camber, a little, little uh, you know, real supple through the tips. Um, I ski the 115 every day here because we always have, typically, normally we always have fresh snow and cold conditions. But it's just been a great company to work with. I just really enjoy the the quality of the materials and the craftsmanship that goes into them. We're kind of in between models right now. I'd like to see some fatter models coming back, which is, uh, they're in the works. Kind of COVID kind of threw some wrenches in the works there, but we'll have another 110 or 112 coming out pretty soon, it sounds like. They yeah. certainly
0: make a great ski, and you have certainly continued to be an absolutely amazing skier. Scott, thanks for as- astounding us <laughs> <laughs> the past 40 years. I look forward so much to getting to ski with you again in March at the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies. It'll be a great reunion, as you say.
1: Right on, Jackson. Looking forward to it. And um, always good chatting with you, man.
0: Thanks. Thanks for joining us. This has been Scott Schmidt with Jackson Hogan for Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.